I want you to look with me at Jeremiah chapter 9. What we're talking about here is significance. What is your definition of significance? When you look at your life and say, what is it I'm striving for that marks what success for my life will be? What should that look like? And Jeremiah 9 gives us an opportunity to contrast different views on that. I'm just going to begin reading at verse 23. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom. Let not the strong boast in their strength. Let not the rich boast in their riches. But let those who boast boast in this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight. So how do you define significance? When you look around and say, boy, that's a person that I think has really succeeded, who is that person that comes to mind? I remember when Vit and I were newlyweds, and so now that goes back three decades, and I was at the time traveling as a professional Christian artist, musician, and Vit and I found ourselves up at this youth conference in Spofford, New Hampshire. I needed to find a post office. So I asked the camp director, so I said, well, if you go about a mile east and turn left, you'll see this little country store that's also their post office. So I go and I take the left-hand turn, and right away I don't think that I'm, I'm on the right road because it's a gravel road. I swore, he said, go down about a mile and take a right-hand turn. And so I saw this other gravel road, and I turned right, and it very quickly shut itself down to a single lane with trees very closely on both sides. So there was no way to turn around. The road moved from gravel to rocks, and, and so I'm starting to hit the rocks as I'm driving through. I have no place to really turn around. The only thing I can do is keep going forward. It's probably, a, I don't know, a quarter mile in, but just seemed like a long way. In my mind, I picture feeling lost forever. They'll come looking for me and find me years from now. Finally, the path began to open up. And what it opened up to was what clearly had been at one time a parking lot. There were white stones around this border, and there was gravel, but then there was knee-high grass that had grown up in the gravel. And so I pull in, and I think, well, here's a place to turn around. So, so I start swinging around. As I turn to my right, I see what the parking space is for. It's this broken-down stone wall and a plaque. For a moment, I paused, and I went and read the plaque. And it was a man who had uh, lived a very significant life in his day. He worked for presidents. He was the president of a major university. He had clearly influenced world policies, and this was his birthplace. Sat there and looked at it for a long time. You notice I haven't said the man's name yet. What you may be thinking is that I'm building up to kind of mention this name that we're all going to go, ah, and all that's left is an overgrown parking lot and a plaque of his birthplace. But here's the real significant point. To this day, I can't remember the man's name. I started thinking about that last night, and I thought, boy, that even adds to this so much more. You know, what, what is a significant life? What makes us mark in history? So you know what I did? What I couldn't do 20 years ago, I Googled it. 
and I found Freedsum Memorial Park. And so I thought, oh, there is a name. So now I'm going to find all this information about him. And I spent about an hour trying Bing, trying Google, and I just asked every question I could. I went on Chesterton, New Hampshire's town historical sites. They called it Fritzum Forest. No information about the man who was born there. I still, after all of that, couldn't find who he was. Isn't that interesting? A man who at one time was one of the movers and shakers. I think in all of our hearts there's a struggle to try in some way to live so that somebody remembers us, so that we make our marks. For some, that means a history book. For others, that means some other success. But we all want to know, in the end, that we have done something with our lives. It wasn't wasted. So I googled a significant life just to see what would come up. Most of it was obituaries. Isn't that interesting? That even as we memorialize people, it's that that often comes to mind. But the other thing I found was some very interesting discussion forums. I found this when I Googled significant life. I have this great fear that I'll never amount to anything, that I'll never be satisfied with myself, that I'll never contribute anything to society. And for me, achievement will always come tomorrow. Can anyone else relate? This represents page one of the responses. Here's some of the responses. I can most definitely relate. This is a huge fear of mine that occupies my mind most of the time. I'm scared to live, but I'm also terrified of dying without ever living. I have so many regrets now, and I don't want to look back on my life and realize that I wasted it, which is what I'm doing now. Somebody else wrote, Yes, I fear I'll never find a good job, be able to support myself, never move out, end up on the streets, have no friends, and die a virgin. Somebody else wrote, I told a therapist this back when I was 18, and she said something like, you're only 18, and most 18-year-olds don't even know what they want to do yet. She wanted me to go out and experience life, and hopefully I'll find my passion and purpose. Ten years later, still no answer. I was amazed at how many people are willing to chime into a discussion when you ask, how will I know my life matters? We define significance by success on any number of levels. We create checklists that we say, I want to have this, accomplish this, do this. Sometimes we call those checklists bucket lists. The thing I want to do before I die, which means that's your standard on some level of a life well-lived. What do you think of when you think of significance. Jeremiah looks at three things that summarize the things that we look to to measure our significance. Let's just look at them. He says, first of all, let not the wise boast in their wisdom. The word wisdom here in Hebrew is practical know-how, the ability to do things, to make things happen. That's what they mean by wisdom. So it's knowledge that can be put to work. It's know-how. We often think about our education or our life skills that we've acquired as some of the things that give us significance. Second thing he mentions is power. Let not the strong boast in their strength. This Hebrew word can both mean physical ability, 
but also the ability to control, shape, influence, to drive something to an end by your sheer force of will. But not the strong boast in their strength, education, power, or influence. The third is possessions. Let not the rich boast in their riches. Now, isn't it interesting that those would probably be the very things that we list in our culture to say, this is how I know I'm significant. This is how I know I'm successful. I'm well-educated. I have some form of influence on people around me. I have authority. Or I have amassed a great deal. Better yet, if I'm able to boast in all of those things. When God says, let not the wise or the strong or the rich boast in this, that word boast is also the same word for glory in. In other words, glory is the weight or the worth of something. That's what glory means. And so when God says, don't glory in these things, he's saying, don't find your worth in them. When in fact, they're the very things by which we would measure our significance, and by which we measure the significance of others. And then he goes on and says, those are the wrong things. If you measure by those things, first of all, you will never (laughs) fully measure up. There'll always be somebody farther up the rung than you. With all that you've got in those areas, you'll always see what you don't have. It's It's an endless thing that never is satisfied. And secondly, it takes you down a path of insignificance compared to what God sees for you. So then he goes on and he says this. He says, first, let's read again. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom or the strong in their strength or the rich in their riches, but let those who boast, boast about this. So before we read it, let's just kind of be very clear. He's bringing it down and he's saying, it's this. This is not a suggestion. This is not one option. He's saying, this is the thing. If you're going to boast, it's this. No other options. Not a menu with four or five courses to choose from. This is it. This is what God's serving up. This is what he says you should glory in. In other words, find worth in. Let's read it. Let him who boasts boast in this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord who executes loving kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Now, that is where God says we are to find our worth. But then he ends by saying, in that person, I take delight, declares the Lord. So interesting. What we are to find our value in is how God finds his value in us. He glories in us. He delights in us. When our glory is in knowing him. Here's my main premise. It's not overly complicated. But knowing it and seeing it simply. And then actually focusing our life around it are two very different things. God says our passion needs to be about him alone. And he describes it as understanding and knowing him. We do a lot of things related to God that are a cheap substitute for that phrase. We study him as a subject. We call it theology. Now, theology is important, but the problem is it turns God into a subject. 
like geology. We're just going to study it like he's some subject that we can get all down. Like if I just get the facts right about him, somehow I know him. That's not the point. Others of us live with the idea that God is unknowable. You know, the agnostic in all of us that would rather toss up our hands and says, who can say, I can't know. So we settle for textbook knowledge or we settle for lack of effort at all. God says, I've got something that's much more significant. This is what you're glorying, that you understand and know me. So the word to know in Scripture is always relational. So when God says, I want you to know me, he's not saying, I want you to know about me. I don't want you to get an A-plus in your theology class where you can define omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, immutability, you know, all those things that you know, we've turned who I am into terms. Imagine if somebody did that to you. Imagine if somebody took Lynn and said, okay, we're going we're gonna to have Lynnology, and we're going to categorize all that we know about Lynn. Well, Lynn's smart. So first of all, let's use the term intelligence to describe. Lynn is lovely. She's a statuesque woman. Let's use the term attraction to describe her. You see what I'm doing? I'm taking things about her, and I'm turning them into some impersonal descriptive that basically leaves us no place knowing who this woman really is, her heart, how God's uniquely shaped her. See, to experience someone is to know them. When God says, I want you to know me, he's talking about being in relationship with him in a sense where you really know him. It's personal knowledge. Second, understanding. In other words, it's not just enough to know his characteristics. It's to be able to draw them into our life with him in a way that we understand what he wants. We understand how he works. We understand what we need to expect from him and what he expects from us. There's an understanding that's a part of that knowledge. See, all of that, God says, that's what you need to glory in. In other words, it's a God pursuit at the heart of our lives that makes any life significant. And it is the only thing that God says is the true mark of success and significance in life. Let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me. Then he goes on and he gives us just a brief description of what that knowledge would be. First of all, there's an I am statement about that knowledge, that I am the Lord. That's Yahweh. That's the self-existent God who created all things and to whom all of creation is to respond in a way that gives him glory. I am the Lord. So there is an I am statement, and there is an, a statement, I execute. So in other words, to understand God is not just to know who he is, what his name is, what his attributes are, but it's to understand his actions in the earth, that I execute certain things in the earth. God wants us to understand him through his interaction with the human race. And he describes that interaction in three ways. I execute, first word, Loving kindness. Well, that's the God all of us want. For many of us, that's our singular word to describe God. 
Ask the average person on the street to say, define God in one word. What would they say? God is love. Is God love? Absolutely. I'm so thankful that he's loving. But if we were to take that idea that we think of as God when we think of him as exclusively loving, the next word should not be alongside loving kindness. He says, because I execute loving kindness... Justice. We have a very high, hard time thinking the way we think of a loving God, that he would also act justly. But God says, I, I do both. I'm not you. I'm not conflicted by this. I execute loving kindness, but I also execute justice. And then the third thing is, I execute, and this, this is even harder to put alongside, our idea of a loving God. I execute righteousness in the earth. Let, let me just give you a quick, quick definition of those, all right? So the first is loving kindness means that God regards us with affection and works and desires good in our life and operates out of that love and desire for us. Justice means that God will respond to the choices in our life in a way that is appropriate, that is consistent. He will always do what is the just thing, which means that God, being a holy God, deals with sin. He eradicates and punishes sin. God will always act justly. In Romans 1, where it says that God turned them over to their passions and their affections, which had turned away from God, what it means is that he did not intervene. And their choices to live a life contrary to God's choices had a natural result in their life of, of immoral death and separation from God. And that was the course of those decisions. And a just God allowed that to happen. He's just. And he's righteous. Righteous means that God always acts right. Never wrong. It means that he acts always in a way that's consistent with who he is 100% of the time. He's righteous. That means rightness. So God says, look, this is a complex set of ideas here. That's why it takes time. That's why you need to be in relationship with you so you understand what it means that I act in a way that is both loving towards you but also out of justice. If you want to understand how these three dynamics of God's righteousness being our standard, God's justice being something he will never compromise, and God's loving kindness being executed in the earth, the way all of those things come together is at the cross of Jesus. See, when we understand and know this God, then we understand why the cross, why he sent Jesus to come and live the perfect life So Jesus could take the punishment for sin that God's justice required. And he could, having satisfied that justice, turn to us in loving kindness and allow us to become righteous in him. See, that's a powerful thought. You don't get there by playing God light. You don't get there by by having coffee shop conversations about who you think God is. You need to glory in a journey of understanding and knowing God. God is delighted in that.
but also gives us delight in return. It's a Godward life, a life at whose heart is the pursuit of God himself that is the only truly significant life. And every person in this room can live that life. I imagine that when you look at the whole of humanity, we are not even a drop in the cosmic bucket. And I could imagine that not a single one of us will find our name in a history book. But every one of us can live the truly significant life for which we were created. Why are you settling for less? Why are you measuring your weeks, your days, your goals based on how much knowledge you gain, how much influence you achieve, and how many possessions you acquire? How is it you can sit back and find satisfaction in things that will not pass into eternity with you? There's that old phrase, as sure as you have never seen a hearse pulling a (laughs) U-Haul. You can't carry any of those things into eternity with you. And that's why the only truly important and significant life is one spent with an eternal perspective. And that can only happen when our whole purpose is framed around following and pursuing an eternal God. There's an interesting contrast here. There are three things that God says are not the things by which we should be measured. And then when he talks about his own character, he also mentions three things. And if we take some time to look at those, we can actually see that they line up. They are contrasts. Look at them. The first one, knowledge, is about know-how. It's practical knowledge to build, construct, right? What does God offer instead of knowledge? He offers justice, true wisdom in terms of the affairs of men and eternal consequence. Isn't that interesting? Our know-how is no comparison for getting to know God's justice. When we talk about power, we mean influence, strength. We mean a sort of physical and social strength. What does God offer? He offers righteousness. That's moral strength, strength of character. We measure ourselves by riches, which focuses on accumulating for ourselves. What does God offer? God offers loving kindness, which is unconditional love focused on others. Isn't that fascinating? So this is really not a set of parallel options, some of which might bring short-term satisfaction, and we might be willing to settle for a little short-term satisfaction. And then, oh, there's the God thing. These are diametrically opposed directions. One leads ultimately to death and the other to life eternally. One is about living in the flesh and what the self can achieve and accomplish, and the other is about God and about moral character and strength and about selflessness that in itself is a great reward. With that in mind, I want you to turn to one more passage with me. Um, It was interesting as I'm going through this, I thought about this passage and I'd never really made the connection before. It was as I was laying out the way the characteristics of God parallel 
the three things that we aspire to that, that I found myself thinking about Micah 6. So turn there with me. We're going to start reading at verse 6. And the real verse I want you to focus on is verse 8 as we get to it. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? These are all things that say, as I come to God, what will impress him? What will bring God's delight and forgiveness in my life? And then the prophet goes on and says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. In other words, he's saying, God's already revealed it to us. How has God revealed it to us? It's interesting. This first verses are all about, other than the firstborn, which I think is an allusion to God testing Abraham with Isaac to see how true his heart was. But the rest of that was all stuff that was consistent with Hebrew worship and sacrifice that God himself instituted. And so you could argue that the law had said, come to him with burnt offerings. But Micah says, more important than that, God has revealed to us what is good and what the Lord requires. How has God revealed that to us? He's revealed it to us by our pursuit of him and our knowledge of him, who executes loving kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth. In other words, God himself, who he is, his very nature reveals what is good and what he requires of us. And then he goes on and says, what are they? To do justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I, I hear three things that are true of God that become true of us when we're in the pursuit of Him. When I am in the pursuit of God, when I am God-focused in my life, and I come to see Him who is loving kindness embodied, then I love mercy. I reflect the God who is in my life, it becomes me, see? To do justly is a reflection of following a God who always seeks justice. Now, I focused uniquely earlier on justice as in the cross and punishment, but, but we know justice far exceeds that. Justice is about the orphan and the widow and the underprivileged. Justice is a large piece of the heart of God. We are called to be instruments of justice, to do justly as the Father who we know is just, walking humbly with our God. That's being in right step. That's a life of righteousness. It really is. A life that allows me to walk humbly and in step with God in a way that is in perfect fellowship with him. So here's where we're at. How do we work our way into this life that is about doing justly and loving mercy and walking with God, which are the things that really measure significance? God says it. Boast in this, that you understand and know me. So let's define a significant life in as simple way as I can. It is making much of God. Making much of God. And that is found in the pursuit of Him as my greatest passion. And then that overflows into me reflecting Him 
through the choices and priorities and characteristics of my life. What would happen if you looked at everything you're planning for, all the goals, all the longings in your life of dreams that are yet to be achieved, what if you looked all those and put against them this one measurement to understand and know and to reflect God in my life? And just ask this one simple question with all those choices. Does this goal, does this activity, does this issue, do these things help me focus on this or do they distract me from it? And what would change? What if every morning you woke up and said, today, I will live a significant life because today I will make much of God? What if at the end of that day you laid down instead of thinking through all the lists that remain undone because that is life these days and some of you losing sleep over it, what if instead you sat back and looked and asked this simple question, did I make much of God. See, I think that shift in focus brings life change at the core of our being. Something to think about. Let's pray. I'm going to encourage you just to sit silently for a few moments and ponder those questions that I just asked you. Look at your life and allow God to say, boast only in this that you understand and know me, and ask you what right now is in the way of that, and what changes might make as we begin this year together, 2011, that would move you closer in tune with being one who lives to know God and to make much of him.